I believe in the resurrection of Jesus, and therefore the question does not arise. And he proceeds to explain. The gospel is news of a fact. News of a fact. News of a fact. And regarding a fact, you cannot be pessimistic or optimistic. Instead, you have to ask a different question. Do you believe it? Or do you not believe it? Do you believe it? The fact of Jesus Christ, born in a manger, raised from the dead, lived a perfect life, the Lamb, sacrificed, whose blood makes the phallus clean, whose blood can be applied to anybody from any place in the world. a fact. So, somebody else, I don't know who said it. Oh, I think C.S. Lewis said this. Facts are stubborn things. So, I hope it'll be a really stubborn, believing reality as we wade into our passage this morning. We're going to be in Genesis. This is kind of the end of the year, beginning of the new year. So, big picture stuff, right? And everything that God has been doing in 2014 is what he's going to continue to do in 2015. And that deals with this fact of the resurrection of Jesus. And that that determines reality to anybody who comes to him with nothing, empty hands, nothing, nothing, nothing. So uh, give your attention to the word of God. This is the book of Genesis. This is a book written by Moses as God worked in Moses to communicate to the people of that day, I want you to move. I want you to be, de- de- be different. I want to redefine you as you are moving away from life in Egypt as slaves for hundreds of years. Now, most of us, none of us have been fo- slaves in that sense. We are all born as slaves to sin. We're all born slaves to our desires And we have all of this continuing to bubble in our heads. Of course, these people work for Pharaoh, for the glory of Pharaoh. They serve only Pharaoh. Pharaoh's word dictates reality. It is the fact under which they must live. And so God is arguing them into another fact, another reality. You are not slaves. I have saved you. I have rescued you. I have redeemed you through blood. And I am forming you into a nation. And I am taking you into this place where I am going to build my nation. And so the whole story, every single story in Genesis is designed to move us out of false identities, like being an American, like being a man, being a woman, being rich, being poor, or being some other nationality. Jesus' singular desire is to move us out of, those things may be true, and they are true, but there's a greater reality. It's not about, as as was written to the church in Colossae, it's not about being a barbarian, or a Scythian, or a slave, or free, or Greek, or Jew. It's not about that. Jesus says, I have come to make you new, to renew you, 
And so that all that you are and all that you hope and all that dominates you is me, my promises, my love, my zeal. Good news is that the most zealous person in the whole universe is Jesus Christ. He is zealous. He is full of energy. He is full of love. He is is full of determination. And he breaks down barriers in our lives and builds us up and up and up. And I pray, we will pray in just a minute, God makes us more new in 2015 than he did in 2014. And that we give ourselves over to this great fact of the resurrection as we move into a new year. So that's Genesis as a whole, to move. And we're just going to have a little sliver of movement in our passage this morning. So let me read this passage, and then we will pray. This is post-Babel. This is Genesis 11. The Tower of Babel was built. God messed up everything on purpose in a gracious way, and the people are dispersed, and this is the beginning of the tongues, tribes, and nations that we enjoy and discover in our world today. So, we're getting narrower in Genesis 11 to a particular family, starting with Terah, okay? Here we go, verse 27, chapter 11. These are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father, Terah, in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans, which is like Kuwait or southern Iraq. Verse 29, and Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, which means princess. And the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. It's a fact. Verse 31, Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife. And they went together, they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, which is like Turkey, modern-day Turkey, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Chapter 12, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you, Abram. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. Isn't that amazing? Do you believe that? Let's pray. Father, we, we, we come to you with all of our idiosyncrasies, past, past with voices that make us feel shame or guilt or blame, a future that we have no idea what will happen. We don't know 
There's going to be all kinds of headlines. We don't know what they are. They're not written yet. And that's a reality. Yet there's also a greater reality that we pray you would help us to believe. We pray this because you're convinced. You understand reality. You reveal yourself to people. It's your call. It's you've got to move. You've written a book to help us move, but you move. You're the mover. You're the shaker. So please speak to us. Please speak to us as we go back into time with Abram and Sarai and all of their issues and all of their brokenness. Yet this great promise that is bound up in your son, Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, you who are so convinced and know these these realities and facts are true, would you give us the ability to believe and move us where we're supposed to go as these, as the, as the resurrection of Jesus unfolds in so many powerful yet messy ways. And we look to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I know that you all are an elite football crowd, so you know the name Johnny Manziel. But for those of you who don't know the name Johnny Manziel, Johnny Manziel also known as Johnny Football, was quarterback for Texas A&M, Heisman Trophy winner in 2012, drafted to be the quarterback, one of the quarterbacks for the Cleveland Browns. But Johnny Manziel is, is uh, not playing, not starting today for the Cleveland Browns because he is injured. And he has a particularly debilitating injury called a torn hamstring. He is, in other words, hamstrung. And I have, one of my, being the athlete that I am, one of my great fears is to be hamstrung. (laughs) I know some people would like to hamstring me, but to be so let me open my medical bag for you. Your hamstring, and every one of you have two, because you have two legs, and the upper, back upper part of your leg is, is this tendon that holds that, best I can understand it, it helps your hips and your knees work together, which is very important. If, you're, if, if our hips and knees don't work together, we can't move. Now, when I saw the picture of Johnny Manziel after his hamstring was torn in the game. He was on his back, and he didn't look like anything. He was not Johnny Football at that time. He was in misery. If you've been through a hamstring injury, it is no small thing. He cannot move. He is dead in the water. And he is watching this game from the sidelines, and there's not a thing he can do to contribute to the win, or certainly the loss. Not had a good year. Anyway, Johnny Manziel, hamstrung. When you look at the end of chapter 11, and I have grown to love this section. That's why I'm talking to you about it. I love the end of chapter 11. Because everything about it is dead. And I can relate to this. We should all be able to relate to this. And if you, if you go back over the family biography of Abraham, they have left home. Now, unless you're a native Athenian, we've all left home. 
And when you came to Athens, everything, of course, is new. I remember when Caroline and her mother and I came to Athens, we all came together. We don't really travel together that much, but we all came together in April 20, 2001. And we were on Millage, North Millage, heading towards Broad. I don't know where we were, but I saw this sign that said, Perfect, P-O-L-I-S-H. And I turned to Caroline and her mother, and I said, I'm so excited, there's a Polish restaurant here. It's perfect Polish, not perfect Polish. Just new, stupid and new. I get the sense, can't prove it to you, but I get the sense that uh, Tehra and, and his family are wealthy people. Now, in the United States, if you had to go out west and leave everything to go out west, usually it was not good from what I can read about. Like if you read about the Alamo and... Davy Crockett and Colonel Travis and Jim Bowie was not, the reason they were in Texas was not all that good. I don't, we don't know what happened. There was a death in the family, but for some reason, and I don't believe it was, we're not told that God spoke to them. Of course, God is the mover and we all move and have our being in him. They left. I wonder if Sarai, whose name means princess, I wonder if she was wealthy. I wonder if she walked around with jewelry and finery and everything. I wonder. Princess, princess, princess. Did she, did she clink when she walked? So they all left. And they left home. And, and, and whatever, 3,000 years ago, to leave means you've really left. And, and nobody leaves unless there's a a calamity usually, or an opportunity to conquer an empire. These aren't empire people, but they go from like South Iraq all the way to Turkey, hundreds of miles, almost a thousand miles. If your camel, I estimated this, if your camel travels 20 miles an hour and you rode that camel every day for 10 hours, it would take you 30 days, at least maybe a month and a half to get to this place called Haran, okay? But I don't think they traveled that way. I think they stopped and go and stop and go. But they're moving. They get there, and at some point, the father dies. Now, in the process of getting there, we learn an important fact. That's a fact. Death is a fact. They only also learn that Abram's wife, Sarai, is barren, and she cannot have children. It's, it's, it, it's doubled so that we would really pay attention to that. And that reality for a woman is gruesome. It is identifying. And in Sarai's day, in Sarai's culture, it is doom. And if you're married to Sarai, like Abram is, it is doom. It is one of the last words you would ever want to, to be attached to your name is to be called barren. And if you dig in Hebrew a little bit, that word barren is what Johnny Manziel is experiencing today. It is to be hamstrung. Sarai can walk. Sarai can ride a camel. Sarai can run the household. 
Sarai makes decisions. Sarai is in the game. But as far as who she is as a woman and what she can really do and really contribute is nothing. She is hamstrung. And there is no changing that. It is a fact. Sarai, are you optimistic or pessimistic? It's just a fact. It's a fact. Then you wind up in this place far, far from home, and and your father dies, your wife is is barren, and at that time, my position is that God had not spoken to Abram, and all he's got are gods, his gods that they carry around with them. Maybe an object of wood, maybe an object of stone, maybe an object of a precious metal, but it can't speak. It can't, it has no It has no power. It has no love. It has no mercy. It's dumb, and they have to carry this thing. That's how how hamstrung it is. And so, in my opinion, if you take the whole section of Genesis 11, you can call it lost. You can call it darkness. You can certainly call it hamstrung. Now, if you grew up in recreation period and uh, experienced the humiliation of, of, of team captains choosing people to be on their team, we would never, ever, ever pick Abram and Sarai and, all the, and Lot. Lot, when you get into his story, Lot exists for Lot. He's in it for himself. You have to read his story to really grasp that. This is the most... Most, most the last choice. The last choice for anything of substance, certainly the last choice, that you would look at them and say, you know, I, I look at this family and all their stuff, and they're going to bless the nations of the world. They're going to bless people in Athens, Georgia in 2015. But we are blessed. Because from Abram, God says, I'm going to bless the families of the world. From you hamstrung people, far from home, with your stuff, I want you to move. I want you to trust me because the fact of reality for their new year is that I'm going to bless the nations of the world. You're going to be the father, Abram. In fact, his name, of course, gets changed not too much longer. Becomes not just father, but the father of, of many. Exalted father of many. But boy, are they lost in chapter 11. Are they ever dead? In fact, you could even take Abram and Sarai, and if you put them in the Les Mis category, they would be Fontaine. They would be singing that, I had a dream my life would be. So different from this hell that I am living. So different now from what it seemed. Now life has killed the dream that I dreamed. And that is where they are at the end of chapter 11. And it's a mess in and of itself, and it's an even greater mess when... You don't even have the true and living God making his presence known. 
But we have a God who speaks and speaks and speaks, and he speaks to people who have nothing to offer. He, has, he speaks to people who have totally screwed up everything. And this is what he does in Abram's life and where we are today and the work that Jesus has done. It's all hanging on Abram right now. And he calls them to move. And they're really starting to get found. And when you read Hebrews 11, it's interesting. Abram is this person in our lives. He is the historical embodiment of God beginning to to make his presence felt around the world. That he's going to save people and make them into a nation, make them into his people. That we live a life of the life we have is, is, is this historical reality. We also have Abraham function for us in another way, as a, as a cheerleader, pointing to Jesus and saying, trust him. I did not know where I was going. I had a wife who could not have children. God came and changed all of that. Now, of course, as you read Abram's story and Sarai's story, it's not like chapter 12 flows and then 13, and so on, into this wondrous, uh, lived happily ever after life. In fact, in many ways, their life became more chaotic. It became more dysfunctional. Yet God's promise marches on the way it does, it did in 2014, the way it will do in 2015, the way it will until Jesus comes again. Are you along for the ride? I know, I know you're along for the ride. And God is here to say, I'm going to push this fact into you, Redeemer Presbyterian Church, because I'm still in the work through my son to bless the nations of the world, to bless people here in Athens, Georgia. We are ascending church. Every church should be. We have the particular fact of being at the University of Georgia, which brings all kinds of people. We are ascending place. I love to hear the stories about all the men and women God has blessed here and has sent them out all over the place because of this reality, this fact that Jesus Christ is the Savior of sinners, raised from the dead, coming back again one day. May God push us deeper into that fact. Because he's the God we can know. He's the God that we make known by our lives here, by our identities, not being about Presbyterian even, or, or, or being the church downtown, but because Jesus has been raised from the dead. He's made me his. I'm one of his people. I am one who's received mercy. Though I had not received mercy, now I have. I was in darkness, now I'm in, now I'm in light. So God comes. And what I find interesting about Genesis when, you, when, God, when these verbs happen with God. So God comes and God begins to speak and God makes promises. I think it should make our minds go back to Genesis 1, back to creation, where God says, let there be light and there was light. Let there be living creatures that move on the ground. Let there be waters here and not here. Let there be stars, and they're there, and there, and there, and they happen, and they happen, and they happen. And so God speaks. This is the kind of speaking he does with us. This is what he did with Abram. Abram, the way I spoke in Genesis 1 is the way I'm speaking 
people in Exodus moving to the promised land, I'm the speaking God that when I speak, it is a reality. Redeemer Presbyterian Church, when I speak to you, it is a reality like let there be light. And there's a wonderful passage, many, many that can uh, testify to this, but if you go to 2 Corinthians 4, God said, let the God who said, the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, shines the light of Jesus Christ into our darkness, into our hearts, like, a, like a, an internal soul recreation. I don't know Pharaoh, and I would love an article to help me understand Pharaoh's life. But the people hearing this story, the first people, they know Pharaoh, and they know that they can't approach Pharaoh. There is no getting into Pharaoh's court in slave garb. Now, I did read recently about Genghis Khan, Mongol guy. Now, I, I want to speak to you all that don't identify with Johnny Manziel. If you, if, I think there's a fewer, fewer of you watch Downton Abbey, but the servants... In Downton Abbey, they, you know, any, any kind of servant in any, any, any noble house, you're supposed to have as little contact with royalty as possible. And so if you're setting the table there at Downton Abbey, you, you take the cup and just with your fingers or something like that, you just touch the smallest part with your skin because you don't want to, to pollute and they don't want to feel dirty. They're touching the cup that the servant touched. If you were able to serve in Genghis Khan's table, not only would you not be allowed to really touch much, but you would have to wear a veil over your face so that your breath would not touch Genghis Khan's table. That's how high and holy he is. That's how unapproachable he is. Now, God is high and holy. John the Baptist said, with Jesus right there, God in the flesh, I'm not worthy to touch his sandals, the dirtiest part of a person's body. I'm not worthy to do that. But Jesus Christ also lives, and we say this all the time, and we must because it's so hard to believe. We can believe the high and holy part. We see how men lord it over one another all the time. Men and women lord it over one another. He lives with the broken. He lives with the contrite. He lives with hamstrung people. And he is not bound by that. He delights in that. He so enjoys the broken and the contrite, is that so enjoys it that he came and lived among us. I don't know what was in Abram's mind when he heard this grand landscape promise over changing world history, defining world history, defining reality. I don't know what was in his mind. I don't even know if he, he knew God could raise the dead. He did know that because that's how God had grown his faith when he and Isaac went up that mountain where Isaac was going to be sacrificed. He knew God could raise the dead to keep his promise to bless the nations of the world. But I don't know if Abraham fully, how much he fully grasped that it was going to be God himself becoming that sacrifice. But he did know this. He told Isaac, my son, God is going to provide. He is going to provide. And he has provided. 
And all those Old Testament people, like we read in 1 Peter, they, they, they know that this is coming. They, they feel stirred by it. They're gripped by it. And yet they're serving us. And now we have the whole banquet of God's promises all bound up in Jesus Christ. So that you can be found today. So that your friends and neighbors can be found. Your families can be found. If you were with family over Christmas, then you, ex- you had, a, I would assume, a mixed, mixed experience of joy and brokenness. That was my experience over Christmas. And there are people in my family that greatly need to be found. I need to be found dealing with, with I, I just need to be found and I need them to be found just to make my life easier. But that's not the reason, ultimately. It's that they, because they're in darkness. And I, I fear for them. My father, two years ago, at Christmas, was one of the worst conversations I ever had with my dad. Two weeks later, he was born again. Jesus shined into his heart. I had given up. And then he died three months later. So he was really lost, as we all used to be. And then when God speaks in your heart, you are really found. When he applies the blood of Jesus to your life, you are really clean. When he says, I'm coming back again, he's really coming back. When he says, I know you're wandering still. I know we're all wandering here. This is not home. I'm going to bring you home. I'm going to make it all right. I'm going to really find you. I'm really going to save you. And then you'll be with me forever. All right, last thing, this word blessed. This word blessed is a very personal word. It's, uh, it's about as personal as you can get. Sometimes in the benediction, not this benediction, but uh, we, we choose a benediction from, from Numbers chapter 6. And Numbers chapter 6 is what God said to say to my people. It's what I want them to know. The fact that I most want them gripped, to be gripped by. It's how I want them to go out into, into life. I want that to be the singular reality. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance. All, that, all, all of His personness in the beauty of it, the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That's a fact into which we enter the brokenness of our life, the brokenness of our family, the brokenness of fill in the blank. And we feel lost in it and we don't know where we're going in it, but God does. And the only way this blessing can be a blessing for us, the only way this can be so personal as to rearrange all the furniture in our soul is that someone had to lose face. Someone had to, had to, had to go through the opposite of Numbers chapter 6. The opposite of blessing is curse. And curse is also personal. I suspect that you have cursed people I suspect that you have been cursed by people. And it is personal. And you mean it with every fiber of your being. And whoever said those terrible things to you meant it with every fiber of their being. They're just powerless to make it so. 
But God is not. And on the cross, when Jesus is crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's on the cross because the wicked are cursed. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And he lost the face of God, his Father, for a singular personal reason, so that each person throughout the world who looks to Jesus with brokenness, guilt, and shame can have that taken away. Jesus became a curse. Jesus lost the face of his Father. He experienced the full opposite of Numbers chapter 6 so that anybody who comes to him can receive the countenance of God. Now, though we can't see it, and one day in the new earth and the new heavens where that is the light by which we understand and see everything. That is what it means to be blessed. That is the message of another coming forward to the Lord's table. That I love you, I love you, I bless you, I call you mine. Just as we sang a few minutes ago. Because Jesus has lost so that we, been lost so that we may be found. And he's alive and he is making his presence known throughout the world. You and I get to live in an incredible, every time is incredible, but to really see the, to see God save people and be, the technologically be able to follow it and even interact with people from around the world who are experiencing the same thing we've experienced. It's not a, it's not a southern United States phenomenon. It's all over the world. It's a wonderful time to live. It's the most wonderful time of the year. And so may the fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, his coming again, bore itself where it needs to go and send you into the chaos to be part of the chaos under the hands of a good shepherd who loves us. I'm not optimistic about it. I'm not pessimistic about it. I want to be just, I want to believe it. Let's believe it. Let's pray.